You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Sam Deegan. Hello. Check Timber continues with a look at Juraj Hertz's The Cremator. Released in 1968, the year of the Prague Spring, The Cremator stars Rudolf Hurinsky as Karl or Roman Kopfkernogel. Yeah, I'm going to have real problems with some of these names this time. A man dedicated to the idea of liberating the soul from the body through the practice of cremation. The film tells the tale of how he goes from acting as the loving husband to embracing Nazism and his descent into madness that gripped the world in the 1930s and 40s, and still grips it today. Though, of course, this being a Czech film from that time, not everything is as it may initially be portrayed on the surface. Now, we're going to be talking about the full film, meaning the end, the beginning, and a few things in between. So if you haven't seen The Cremator and don't want the thing ruined for you, turn us off and come back when you're ready. Now, Sam, when was the first time that you saw the cremator and what did you think i want to say it was somewhere between eight to ten years ago and i saw it actually screened in a bar it wasn't what i was expecting and so so basically the way that it was advertised was sort of as kind of an absurdist black comedy and it was part of this sort of intermittent but kind of ongoing screening series that would happen at random locations around Philadelphia. So all these sort of people sitting down for dinner also got to watch The Cremator, and I don't think we're prepared for it. But I fell immediately in love with it. It was actually the second Czech film I ever saw after Valerie and her Week of Wonders. So, of course, it just made me want to go out and find so many more. This was a first-time watch for me. I tracked this one down years and years ago and just had never checked it out, pun intended. The screening series, was this, uh, you mentioned this, I think, when we talked about closely watched trains, was this the Joseph Gervasi screening series? It was. And I, I can't remember how many of them he did, but I think people either were just sort of swept away by this film or were thoroughly confused because the location that it was in is i think it's an old bank but basically it looks like it's so it's in like downtown center city philadelphia and it looks like a greek temple but it's kind of a 
bro bar. Like if you go in there on Saturday night, it's terrible and everyone's wasted. So people were really sort of taken aback. Like, what are we watching right now? Why is this movie being projected on the wall? Like what is happening? <laughs> this seems like a natural for the Philomoka location. Cause isn't that a morgue? So the Philomoka location is actually, it was a mausoleum showroom. So, but still I think it would be perfect if someone screened it again there because not only because it was a mausoleum showroom, but I think it's just that kind of the kind of film that the audience there would really appreciate. I had a friend who lived in Baltimore and he used to do a lot of film screenings at the the place where he and a lot of friends lived. And the viewing room for the screenings was an old viewing room for funerals. So this would have been a perfect location for that as well. This movie, I was completely blown away by it because I had just seen images here and there and really didn't know much of anything about it before going into it. And my goodness, the cutting style of it. I really enjoy the way that it is put together editorially and the performances. Oh my God, our main character is just riveting. And the movie is almost a monologue from him. I mean, other characters speak, but he speaks the most. I would say 90% of the dialogue in the movie is probably him. It kind of reminds me almost of like David Thewlis and Naked. You know, he just continuously speaks throughout this and what he has to say is amazing and the way that he is constantly reinforcing who he is through his words, not necessarily through his actions is wonderful. And he is so about appearances, even from the very beginning of the film, when we have that kind of family portrait, like we start at the zoo and we see these extreme close-ups of this leopard in a cage and then extreme close-ups of our main character, Carl, and the way that we're going back and forth, of course, we're kind of associating him with this animal that's in this cage, but then also all of these other predators uh, that we get and then the uh, other close-ups of his family. And then we get this moment where they walk and they see this mirror and it's this very uh, – it kind of reminds me of like one of those mirrors at a convenience store where you can see all the different angles and they give us this close up of them in uh, a really wide fisheye lens shot. And they're all there, him, his wife and his two kids, a boy and a girl. And they're really distorted by this. And these family portraits will come back again and again throughout the film to the point where there's a literal family portrait that he keeps talking about and it just, it's so great. And that fisheye lens continues through so much of this movie. It, it, there's an amazing short that uh, our friend Daniel Bird helped put together uh, this way to the cooling chambers, which was on the German DVD release of this. And to see the uh, way that the cooling chambers, the way that the crematorium looks today or looked in, I think it was 2011, cut with the way that they shot the cremator and you just see the distortion of the lens so much when they're going back and forth between these shots. And I didn't even realize how distorted the image was until I got to see that. The whole thing with the fisheye lens, it kind of makes me think of Roger Corman's sort of early Gothic films, the way that 
in those movies, like those Vincent Price movies, things like House of Usher, he uses these sort of zooms and these lens effects to show you that a character is going mad or is already mad in this, you know, kind of over the top, really enjoyable way that I think is common to some horror movies. But here, he doesn't really do that stark contrast where you have a scene sort of regularly shot, regularly set up, and then it switches over to this fisheye lens. Here, it's so much more subtle that I think you have to watch it a few times to realize just how disorienting this universe is and how Kopferkingle is off his rocker from the ve- from the very beginning of the film. You mentioned the fact that he has sort of this ongoing monologue. That was one of the things that really struck me this time around is, I guess, I don't know why, but lately I've sort of been paying attention to how much of a film is images versus dialogue. And this is like 90% dialogue. And there are barely any scenes of silence and barely any scenes where other people have more than two lines of dialogue. Like, I don't know how Hrushinsky did it. I mean, it's, it's like 90 minutes of straight talking. <laughs> like, well, and it's funny that you brought up the Corman uh, Gothic films because Hrushinsky reminds me of a more mild mannered Peter Lorre. Yes. It, it, he he doesn't have that affect of you know the wild eyed Peter Laurie. He kind of is more the Peter Laurie of like the Lost One, where he's not playing it over the top, and he has that kind of sedate. He he reminds me of a snake a lot. Just he he is ready. I can't say he's ready to strike, but he's very dangerous. But he is very calm on the exterior. So just frustratingly calm at times like in one of the first scenes where he is kind of uh gathered together a whole group of people so he can kind of give this sales pitch about cremation and why it's really the best way to go he is going around and you know set he's like i said he's very about appearances and he's very controlling so he's telling the wait staff you know nobody can drink here you can have everybody's going to have tea and if they want to pay extra they can have some weak coffee and the way he goes around and there's the one character who's smoking a cigar and he just plucks the cigar out of his mouth and puts it out in the ashtray. And then he speaks to Mr. Strauss a little bit later, does the exact same thing to him. And it's just like, he is so controlling, but he's, he doesn't make a big deal out of it. He just plucks the cigar out of the guy's mouth and puts it out. <laughs> he's strangely passive in a way and seems harmless in a way that I think Lore often did in some of those films. It just is, especially like you were saying in the lost one, I think there's a similar vibe where they both sort of seem to be sleepwalking. Like they're, they're alert and you could tell they're intelligent, but it's like they're living in sort of a different reality than everyone else in the movie. And I don't know. He, I think he has it even more like in the lost one, Laurie gives off this sense of just absolute sheer exhaustion from the trauma that he's been through. But in this film, Kopfer Kingle, it's like, he's, I don't know. 
Well, in the lost one, there's that scene in the mirror, which reminds me a lot of the mirror scene in M, where Laurie's making those faces. And in The Cremator, when Copperfingal looks at himself in the mirror, he just gives that kind of beatific smile. And it just is a matter of like, here I am, everything is right with the world. And that he has this whole thing about Buddhism, and he is always talking about the Book of the Dead and about uh, Nepal. And he is very, like I said, very, very calm. And it just seems like he is the calm center of the world. But he takes in these ideas, especially when he meets one of his old war buddies and his buddy just starts filling him his head with all of this nonsense about Germanic blood and the purity of blood. And he just starts to spit these things out as if they were his own ideas. Just, you know, it just takes them in doesn't necessarily mull them over. He just, it's almost unfiltered where he'll take them in and then just start to spit them out later on. And just is so calm. He's so calm when he is selling out all of the people around him in the world. He just, you know, oh yeah, he's, he's Jewish. She's Jewish. I mean, I, I know I'm jumping ahead, but it's just like, oh yeah, just putting the finger on all these people and not a care in the world as he does it. You mentioned Tibet and I feel like this was bugging me the entire time I rewatched the movie and it's, it's inevitable. Like I have to bring it up. It made me think about twin peaks the entire time. And it just, I mean, I, I know this is timely because the season three just ended, but it just seemed like such a random connection to have, you know, this, this check film made during, the Prague Spring about the Nazi occupation to have all these references to Tibet and the book of the dead. And I mean, the book of the dead makes sense because he's obsessed with death. So it seems natural that Hertz would find some kind of either mythological or sort of religious thing to bring in. But it just like, I couldn't stop thinking about it and how it's used similarly in the cremator but it doesn't really have that same, like when Agent Cooper talks about his dreams of Tibet and his divination method that happens early in season one of Twin Peaks, it has this sort of whimsical tone that is totally absent from the cremator. And it it makes it almost sort of like, it's like a window into his personal madness that image that's on the front of the book because he brings that book to that initial rally that he has and he you know holds it up and we get to see that picture of Lhasa on the front and that comes back in the very end shot of the film and yeah it's this idealized place for him it's almost like he thinks that Tibet is going to be the place where I mean well he has a character who's played by himself come in at one point and say that he is the new Dalai Lama. So it's just, yeah, it, he, that is really when his break with what tenuous hold on reality he has happens is when he does a literal split towards the end of the film and he visits himself and it's just like the Dalai Lama has died. You are the new Dalai Lama. That use of the double is so crucial to kind of wrapping your head around this film because Hertz talked about how he was really influenced by German expressionism and 
I, I think I remember and the, it was sort of described to me before I saw it. It was described to me as being a black comedy. And I remember it being more comedic and funnier. And when I watched it again this time around, I didn't find it funny at all. And it struck me as being much more of a horror film. And I think it's one of the few Czech films from this period that you could really describe as gothic horror. And I think that that double at the end where it's, it's, you know, it's himself talking to himself in a black robe. It's just such a kind of wonderfully literary image that, and you know, he Hertz made another film sort of in the same line, uh, Morgiana, which also has, those gothic themes and also has a double it's like these two sisters and one actress plays both sisters, I think. But I just, I love that he brought in these absurdist elements that you find in a lot of the other Czech new wave films, but took it in such a different direction. It's, it's so eerie. I love the, the characters that run throughout this. Like there's that woman in black with the long black hair and it's interesting in that making of documentary or the, the, uh, the, the, the extra for the DVD, he's saying some people think of her as death and that was not the original intention. And I'm just like, well, what was the original intention? What did you mean for this character to be? Because she shows up throughout the entire film and there are many characters that will just kind of appear throughout the film there and they're all there at the beginning which is a uh, really nice way of, of carrying us through this entire film but she especially will just show up at these odd moments and especially that end when he is driving away to his fate and she's chasing after the car the only time that we see any kind of real emotion in her face or any kind of action because otherwise she is either sitting or she's walking slowly and she has this very serene look on her face as she goes throughout this film and i mean to me she is very much a specter of death but i mean okay i wonder what hers meant for this character i think i kind of also saw her as being sort of representative of maybe an erotic urge because Kupfer Kegel has a really strange relationship with sex and his own sexuality. And she seems to pop up at moments when he's thinking about, or even when he's talking about beauty, she pops up in a way that where it does seem like she is kind of meant to haunt him a little bit. Like she's sort of a, like you're saying a, a spectral figure, but also kind of, I don't know. I, I guess maybe it's that she looked so much like his wife and he talks about his preference for women with dark hair and Hertz kind of ties them together. We also get that appearance of uh, the character Manzel Hlupe Zeni. I'm trying to remember the name of the actor's name, uh, who just the actor appears in so many Czech films. Vladimir Mensik. He just he's showing up all the time and he's going to be in next week's film happy end he's our main character but he just shows up throughout so many czech films and he and his wife and the way that they just kind of pop up almost randomly as well they show up at the chamber of horrors they're at the boxing match they're at uh, the funeral they're at the cemetery and there's this whole thing of the wife like not 
understanding where they're at, which is bizarre. Like when they're at the, the there's this chamber of horror scene, and she's just like, "That looks like the dairy maid." And he's like, "We're not at the dairy." <laughs> And at the boxing match, you know, it's like, oh, they, they, uh, she's worried about the referee and very upset when the referee gets hit. And then even at the very beginning in this, this kind of sales pitch, uh, scene, the way that, uh, he, sh- he's like, oh, you told me we we're going to the orchestra. And she's like, oh, there's, there's music here. And he's like, there's only four players. <laughs> she's like, maybe the rest will show up later. Their exchange, I think, is the most overtly, comedic element of the film and the scene with the two of them at the end is my favorite when she comes tearing ass through the cemetery and he's following her yelling about how this isn't a frivolous place and this is a serious place and it's a cemetery and like she needs to get it together and he doesn't really give you a sense of what inappropriate thing she was doing but it just (laughs) I think that's the last time you see her, and it's perfect. Right, because the next time we just see him alone, and he says, my wife has been missing for a week. And that seems to be around the time that the purges start happening. I think it's so elegant the way that Hertz deals with the Nazism theme. And I, I know we definitely talked about this in terms of closely watched trains, but in The Cremator, he doesn't make it super overt. You know that they're Nazis because of all of his references to what time period is and the fact that, you know, the German army is marching on the Czech front. And so, you know, it must be 1938, but he doesn't beat you over the head with Nazi flags or SS uniforms. I think there's really just one scene where they're walking into the main gates of the crematoria and they give the Nazi salute and Kupfer Kingle sort of turns around with like exactly like you said, that beatific smile on his face and just holds his hand up and looks at his hand. Like he's not sure what it's doing. And then once he kind of gets the feel for it, he raises his hand up higher and it's neat too, because we don't even see that it's done in close up. So it's like, we just see the motion of the arm go up and that, and we're just stuck on his face throughout the entire thing. You would think that we would get a long shot of that, but no, it's all done in close up. And the cuts and the close ups in this, I mean, I know you mentioned the, the editing earlier, but it's just this sort of genius use of collage and all kinds of things that make this a little more experimental than an overt horror film in a way that I absolutely love. Like the really quick shot, there's a scene early on where he's in this room that's just super crowded with paintings, mostly paintings of naked women. And there are these super quick shots that jump from painting to painting to painting. And I think it then sort of, a little bit later jumps to a shot of the woman in black. And it's just sort of this, he makes these really dizzying connections through that kind of, those kinds of close-ups and that kind of editing that I am obsessed with. Well, that opening credit sequence where it's just the either body parts or faces and the way that the faces will split apart the way that the body parts come in and just will build up. I mean, God, it is absolutely gorgeous. And it really kind of, 
talks to the way, especially because we start with a, a picture of him and the way that it splits apart on his head. It's just like, okay, we're going into some really dark places here. I mean, hers really sets us up from the beginning with the idea of the collage stuff. And yeah, we get so many of these great moments. I mean, there's a part towards the end where we just get a quick flash of this noose and it's just like, oh, wow. Okay. And, and by then we are kind of used to these quick cuts, but when they first start to happen in the film, it's just like, what, what is in, what is happening? And that first moment where we go from that, that, that sales pitch that I was talking about into this portrait shop, I guess you call it, or like, it's almost like a junk shop, but there's tons of paintings there. And we don't really realize because he's, you know, like I said, so much of this movie is done with close-ups of him, and we go to a close-up of him. He's been talking about, you know, why people should get cremated. We're still with him, but then we notice that the music has dropped out, and then we realize that we're not in the same place, and we have been transported to this whole other area to this shop and that's when he starts looking at these paintings and there's this painting of the president of nicaragua and he's like oh no that's so and so and he starts to give this whole thing and the guy who's selling him the paintings like no that's the president of nicaragua it says right here it's like no no doesn't he ask him to cover over the label yes <laughs> yes and it's all about appearances again. It's like this guy should be this person. I don't care if it's the president of Nicaragua. He's now going to be this. And it's so much about these appearances and about the artwork. He, his whole house is done up in artwork and to the point where he has artwork in his own bathroom. And the bathroom is this holy place for him which he just continuously talks about the bathroom. Our bathroom is much prettier. He says at one point when they're in this chamber of horrors and the bathroom is done up to look very much like the crematorium in this black and white style that they have. And I love that there are those sort of weird interludes, like really the only times when he stops talking are when they're in that chamber of horrors and it it seems like the reason he shuts up for a minute is because he's so overwhelmed visually by what's going on that he's able to sort of turn off his ongoing monologue. And the same thing happens later when he's invited to this sort of ceremonial Jewish dinner and there's this singing that he thinks is really beautiful and mournful and is like funerary singing. And that's, I think that is the single moment in the film where he stops talking the longest. He's got this whole thing about music. And again, with appearances, he wants to appear so cultured to the point where he's got loudspeakers in the crematorium where he'll turn on music to work with. And that he works with two guys at the crematorium, one named Strauss and one named Dvorak. It's just amazing that these two characters have these names. And then, of course, one is a Czech composer, one's a German composer. And it, that whole dichotomy between the Czech and the German really plays out throughout so much of this. You know, are you Czech or are you German? If you have one drop of German blood, you should be German. You know, you should consider yourself that. That is coming, this nonsense is coming from his old friend who just, like I said, fills his head with all of these ideas and that 
he I love this whole thing about blood that they have through this because he goes into that chamber of horrors that we're talking about and at one point he goes into an area where they have these pictures and examples of syphilis and other diseases and then we go from that into him getting his blood tested by Dr. Bethlehem and that he is pretending he's like oh um I, you know, I work with the dead. I don't want to get any of these diseases. And the doctor's like, oh, you know, you have nothing to worry about. And then we find out the real reason why he's getting tested later on is that he goes to prostitutes all the time. Well, and you also kind of get the sense that whether he goes to prostitutes or not, he has this sort of obsession with cleanliness in a way that he's really getting the blood test because he's paranoid and wants to make sure that he hasn't been contaminated in some sort of unknown way. Even Bettelheim says something about how, you know, you don't have to worry because you don't deal with those kinds of bodies at the crematoria, meaning you don't deal with any kind of you know, aggressive infection that would spread from a dead person to a living person. And I mean, most STDs, even something like, you know, syphilis or HIV, it it dies when the blood dies. So it, it really, it, and I know that they didn't necessarily know all of that in 1938, but it just, it makes him look so much more, it's like in one quick scene, it makes him seem so much more paranoid. Because <laughs> there's that quick shot of him so Hertz doesn't explain it to you, but just shows this scene of him rolling up his sleeve seemingly out of nowhere, like it's just some sort of impulse that he can't control, and taps on his arm. And for a minute you think he's going to start doing shooting up morphine or something because you see the needle go into his arm, but you realize that the shot has transitioned from this parlor where he was talking into the doctor's office. And I those cuts are just I know we keep talking about them, but they're so well used. That chamber of horror scene comes right after like the family goes out to the the carnival and it's amazing to see the difference between his face when they're at the carnival versus when they actually go into the sideshow. And he is just standing there pretty nonplussed throughout the entire scenes of the carnival. And we keep getting these like family portraits, these shots of the four of them together. And then when we go into the chamber of horrors, that's when he gets a smile on his face. That's when he's really engaged. And it's amazing to see how many things are being foreshadowed in that chamber of horror scene, uh, that we're going to get like later on. He, they show a, uh, uh, they talk about a man who took an iron bar and beat someone to death. They talk about a man who hung himself. And it's like, wow, we're going to get – I mean, we have multiple hangings in this film. We have at least two hangings plus the hanging at the Chamber of Horrors. And then the lead pipe is going to come back, or the iron bar, I should say, is going to come back as well. So I was thinking of Clue. And we get so much of this. And the the actual Chamber of Horrors itself, too, with the, uh, the quote-unquote animatronic <laughs> – things that they have which are just actors who are acting uh like robots i have to say it's really good robot acting it is really good robot acting but i also i love that scene so much because i think that is the most sort of overt nod to german expressionism and i think 
in an interview, Hertz was talking about how Robert Vina influenced him. And it's, it's like, he's sort of saying, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna set one of these scenes in this cabinet of Dr. Caligari world and just have it be so it's like the fact that the film is set in 1938, you get, you do get this sort of like out of time feeling the way that that carnival and sort of horror sequence it's so grand guignol in a way that it's like he doesn't care about if the effects look surreal or those robot actors seem campy like that's all part of the the sort of nightmarish quality well and it's pretty great to call back to german expressionism you know which was like uh that whole what was the crack hour book from Caligari to Hitler, right? Because we're right there with that. You know, we're, we're right there with that kind of expressionistic, uh, world that leads into the Weimar Republic that is, you know, leading us right. I mean, you know, this stuff, you're, you're, you're like the bank of my hand. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, but it, it's such a smart callback to make at that point. It is. And, but I think it's also unexpected because the film is really, I mean, it kind of jostles you pretty often because you start off with that opening sequence we talked about, which makes you feel like you could be watching daisies or something that's really kind of nonlinear and experimental. But instead you get this pretty straightforward linear film that follows his progression from sort of upstanding Czech cremator to somebody who's, you know, signed up for the Nazi party and is murdering their own family without any kind of provocation. And it's just, it is kind of, I don't know, I think it's deceptively straightforward, but really uses these experimental elements to its favor in a very disorienting way. It's so subtle in so far as the, you know, he talks about we're a Czech family, we have Czech blood, we have Czech books in our house. Uh, we uh, eat carp the Czech way kind of thing. And then later on, it's like, well, I do have one drop of German blood. And then it becomes, no, I'm pure German. And then that his wife and then children aren't pure German. And that becomes his excuse to murder them. And then also becomes this whole idea of you cannot move up in the party if you have these things that are holding you back, such as this, you know, quarter blood Jewish son of yours, the Safit son, this uh, quarter blood uh, German or Jewish daughter of yours. And just that he is just, okay, well, that's what I have to do. And again, he's just so nonplussed about everything. All right. Well, that if I want to move up in the party, I'm going to have to take care of this problem. It's it's so disturbing. <laughs> Oh, yeah. The way that we have leaflets in this, that he is handing out leaflets at the beginning about get cremated, and they almost have the same artwork as the next leaflet, which is uh, given to them at a boxing match, which is join us for youth boxing. And then the final leaflet is uh, a Nazi leaflet, but they have almost the exact same artwork on them as you go through this. And each one is this encouragement, you know, join us for this, join us to get cremated, join us for youth boxing, join the Nazi party, be a smart. (laughs) Nice reference. (laughs) Yeah. It, I don't know. I, I think p- 
part of what's so brilliant about some of that cinematography is the way that things seem interchangeable. And it kind of layers that theme of his willingness to collaborate and not even a willingness to collaborate, but a willingness to have his mind changed for him in a way that I think is such a scathing indictment of Czech communism. And I mean, it's the same thing that we talked about with closely watched trains where you kind of have two things going on. Like on one hand, you could read this, you could read them both as films about Nazi occupation, but you can also read them both as films about communist occupation. And this one in particular is so over the top that there's no way it could have been made at any time other than 1968 during the Prague Spring, because Hertz never would have gotten away with these sort of really nasty collaborationist themes. It's almost as if this movie was all about the, uh, what was it, Zednicek character from Closely Watched Trains. You know, just that uh, he's the Nazi collaborator, but obviously it's a, a discussion of Czech collaboration with the communists. And that is what we're seeing. And again, talking about the subtlety of this, I mean, in our own world right now, we keep talking like this is not normal. And we just get this like every single day, there's something new, some new offense, some new craziness. And it's very subtle that our world right now is so different than our world a year ago, six months ago. And that we have this subtlety going throughout the cremator. It just shows how easily these things can happen as we go along, especially if you don't put any sort of thought to it, that it's just like, oh, well, you know, this person is talking about this. It makes so much sense. And I'll just kind of go along with the ride. And, oh, look, it's an opportunity for me for business. I mean, he uses this Nazi influence as a way to get a promotion that he says, oh, well, my boss, the director of the funeral uh, home, he said that he'd like to see Germans in ovens. So we really need to get rid of him as well, that he then he also uses it as a way to get back at this woman who wouldn't return his his uh, amorous affections. And oh, well, she's she's Jewish as well. And just anybody who has offended him in any small way, even if it comes down to like, you know, he smokes too much, they're going to be taken care of just in that's him proving that he's a good party member now. There's no he said, she said. You're just inside Kupferkinkel's head and you're hearing what he's telling other people. So we don't actually know that his boss ever said, I want to see Germans in ovens. And some of the stuff he attributes to Jewish people saying when you actually meet the characters like Dr. Bettelheim it's impossible to really imagine or it's a stretch to imagine that they would be saying those things at all, which makes him seem even more avaricious and manipulative. I think one of my favorite things about this film is, as I've mentioned before, I've been writing this book about World War II and cult films. And the films about collaboration have sort of become my favorite because they're so complicated. And like, like you mentioned with what's been going on in the U S in the last year, they're often really disturbing because of how quickly 
you see these characters sort of swept into this nightmare and but swept like especially in the cremator swept in a way that seems inevitable like these small decisions he makes that adds up to him being a fucking lunatic shoving people into coffins they they make sense we talked about appearances versus reality and there's so much doubling that happens in this movie to the point of our main character having two names you know his wife calls him roman and his real name is carl now roman i think is a very telling name especially when you think about roma and these things and and i think he talks about roman uh like as in rome things later on but that he has these two names that his wife has two names and then that his wife is actually playing two characters she plays his wife where she barely gets uh, talking about dialogue she get, barely gets any dialogue there are so many scenes that she plays out with nary a word and same thing when he goes to see her and she's a prostitute, Ms. Dagmar, she's playing, the actress is playing, it's not really his wife. And he is just carrying on this whole thing, talking all about his work to the prostitute. And I'm sure she doesn't really care, but she's listening to him. And then the dichotomy of these black-haired prostitutes that we have and then when the germans take over or when he starts going to these german events there are no prostitutes with dark hair and you mentioned before about him preferring dark hair really wants to see these dark-haired prostitutes like his wife but no they're all now these blonde-haired prostitutes which really remind me of walter uh his uh his old war buddy who's filling his head with all this nonsense his wife is a blonde and that it's not just him going to see prostitutes, but it's also Walter and his boss. And this has to be probably the most lascivious scene that I've ever seen in one of these uh, uh, Czech New Wave films where we actually – I mean we don't see the literal you know, uh, act, but a very, very strong indication of a blowjob going on under a table. And the way that our main character is just spying on that and cannot take his eyes off of this, it is just amazing. He's so into watching this guy get blown. And there's that amazing scene where – so they call it the, – the whorehouse, they call it the casino. And it's basically – not a casino the way we would think of it with gambling, but it has, you know, champagne and dancing on the first floor. I think there's some card playing and then you go upstairs for private entertainment. But there's this amazing scene where Copper Kingle is in one room. And like you said, he's just delivering this work monologue to the prostitute as she's sort of getting herself ready and it takes you a couple seconds, but you realize that he's also talking to his friend who's in a room across the hall with another prostitute who is also getting ready. And like the two women, I think one hands another one a bottle of perfume or something. But it's like they have this conversation with each other about, you know, who's Jewish and what the Jewish people are saying and who to turn in up until literally probably 30 seconds before they're both about to have sex. The scene is so subtle, but I mean, that's definitely another one of the sort of harder to recognize or less obvious comedic moments. Cause it's just so, <laughs> it's so, it's so anti erotic. <laughs> it, it really is. It really is. And yeah, hit the head, 
uh, Nazi. Uh, he's also there and just kind of makes an appearance at yes. one point. It's just like, okay. He sort of pops his head in the room to clarify right. one of Cuffer Kingle's statements. <laughs> yes. And you talked about how we don't actually hear the director say these things. And then it gets, uh, there's a point where you mentioned him going to hear the singing of the cantor, the Jewish cantor. And he again starts to speak. And we don't necessarily know if he's speaking to the the people that are at this Jewish ceremony or what, but no, he's actually speaking to Walter and giving this report on the party and guests here. It just starts to say all these things that the Jewish people allegedly said, but we never heard them say that. It suddenly becomes like, oh, well, this guy wants to do this and this, but and Walter is he wants to hear what he wants to hear. And he's like, Oh, they want to overthrow Germany. It's like, Oh yeah. Yeah. That's what they said. It's like, no, they didn't. And I'm sure that they didn't say that. Yeah. That, that moment is so dramatic that you have pretty much no doubt that he's making all this up because he likes this newfound position of power and he doesn't want it taken away. And he likes feeling important, but it just seems weird because at the same time, he, it's like he has no no loyalty and no reflection about the value of feelings or human connection. I mean, he admits that he was really moved by the cantor and how beautiful the singing is. And in the same breath is like, well, I guess you're going to have to kill all of them. Like, <laughs> like, what? But then, of course, does the same thing with his own family. We must make sacrifices. There is no place in the new Reich for impure blood. You know, go, again, going back to the blood, and now he realizes that his own family is impure, so he really needs to, quote-unquote, take care of them. So he sends off his kids to stay with their aunt, and then he's alone with his wife. And that scene, it's uh, him talking, and we're getting this POV, quote-unquote, from him, and he's talking to her and almost pursuing her through the house and the way she's looking at the camera, AKA us and has this fear in her face. And he's saying these very sweet things to her. He's always calling his children, his angels. He's calling his, his wife, his darling, all of these things. And he's just lathering on this whole thing of like, Oh, I want you to put on your black dress. You haven't worn that in so long. We're going to have this romantic dinner and the look on her face is one of absolute horror. Let's pretend it's, he says, isn't it our anniversary? Even if it's not, let's pretend that it is. Or at least it's the anniversary of when we met outside the leopard cage. Like, what? <laughs> yeah, it keeps going back to that leopard cage. When we met outside the leopard cage all those years ago. Yeah, it just, it it seems like it's going to turn into some sort of domestic rape scene. Because he's clearly pursuing her through the house. There's even a great moment where she slams a door in his face. And totally nonplussed, he opens the door and just keeps talking about their whole romantic night. And it just, it's, I don't, it's so creepy. Yeah. And then gets worse. It is entirely creepy. Yeah, and then it gets way worse when it's like, oh, hey, there's a problem in the bathroom with the ventilator. Why don't you get up there and open that up for us? That the cord is shaped like a noose, and he just 
so noncommittally throws it over her head and says to her, what if I were to hang you and pulls the chair out from under her? And there's just nothing on his face. There is nothing but calm on his face. It's one of the most horrific moments of the film that he can just do that without a second thought. I mean, it is, it's, there's no buildup. There's no musical crescendo happening. He just says so plainly, what if I were to hang you? And then does. Yeah. And, and that is, I think, what makes it so dramatically different from the Lore film, The Lost One, is that when Lore's character commits his first murder, actually, when he commits any of his murders, it's an act that's inspired by some sort of passion, whether it's intense sexual arousal that he doesn't know what to do with, or the first murder is because his, his girlfriend cheats on him or his fiance cheats on him. And he's sort of overcome with rage and, and kills her. But here it's just so even unlike any kind of serial killer scenes in most thrillers, like there's, there's no calculating, you know, you're the prey and I'm the predator and now I'm going to trap you angle. It's just sort of, oh, look at this. This noose just happens to be here. <laughs> it gets so creepy. Oh, yeah. Well, in the way that he uses his wife's funeral, like he's up there speaking. We've already seen him speak to the one audience about cremation. He's up at the at the the front of the room at his wife's funeral, speaking about her, and then all of a sudden, and we talked about how the the wide angle, the fisheye lens, that that doesn't necessarily signal that we're in a horror moment or not. To me, I think it's some of the audio cues that we get that really kind of tell us that we're in these horror moments, because suddenly his voice changes and we get this real echo effect on it, and he suddenly switches from talking about his wife's death to the pure blood of the Germans and the Fuhrer and all of this. And people just start rushing out of the funeral. But then there are some people at the funeral that start doing like seek Heil. And it's like, oh my God, what has just happened? And then to the moment of, was that real or was that not real? Because this seems to be the break in reality, even though so much of this distortion that we're seeing throughout the rest of the film is reality. One of the things that Hertz weaves through this in a really subtle way is in Czechoslovakia during the occupation, I mean, for anybody for some reason who has missed history class – that was basically the first foreign country that the Nazis invaded. I mean, Austria, the Anschluss, which which happened a few months before, it was such a sort of passive act that you can't really consider it an invasion. But the Czech people really resisted as much as they could. So it wasn't like with Vichy France, where there's this sort of widespread collaboration. And I think you see that in this film, because you see that like, there's the great scene where his son talks about how he made friends with this boxer, and the boxer is training so that he can punch Nazis in the face. <laughs> and the moment at the funeral that you just mentioned, where people are outraged and leave, and I love that that's sort of wound in here because it makes, in comparison, it makes him seem so much worse because basically his entire community and his his family, I mean, you get the sense that his wife is horrified at everything that's happening. 
like from pretty early in the film, you get this idea that his entire world is sort of violently against this occupation and hates and rejects this idea of, you know, German dominance being the natural order, except he, for some reason, just goes right along with it. And I think that's something that it takes a little while to be clear, but it makes him seem so much more nuts by, by the time we get to this funeral scene. That thing with the son and the boxing is amazing because the son, Mealy, the actor that portrays him, does a fantastic job. And that he always wears this kind of stunned look on his face. And when they cut to that boxing match and he gives that little gasp before the camera is being punched by one of the boxers is another one of those great edits. And there's this whole thing about, you know, your son is effeminate and, you know, he's, he's just a, it's, it's a shame how effeminate your son is. And then it becomes this thing of like how he hides the picture of the boxer in his suitcase. And it's like, okay. And it, it's just like, all right, is there some sort of like romantic thing going on here? Is this just an idolization of this boxer or is there something else happening with this? And then, yeah, he is at first, uh, our main character is so into the idea of, oh, great, my son is idolizing this boxer, and this boxer is very strong. He's going to teach him to not be effeminate. And then when his son turns around and says, no, he wants to punch Germans in the face and break all their teeth. And then it's just it's like, oh, no, no, you're going to go to a German school now. And the way that the wife reacts to that, but she doesn't say a word. She is so quiet through this. And again, it's kind of this thing, which I think, you know, hers is kind of speaking to us, the audience. Nobody's speaking up. Nobody's saying anything bad about this. And he just continues his his monologue of madness throughout this whole thing. And no one says anything to him that maybe you're wrong about this. So I, I actually love what they do with the character of the son because there is that whole thing that you mentioned about how his friend tells him his son's too effeminate and – I definitely read the picture of the boxer to be gay subtext, but well, because he gets noticed. I mean, he's so passive throughout the entire film. He barely says anything. Like you said, he has this sort of constant look of surprise, but he gets sort of like all passionate and stirred up at the boxing match. Like it's the first time you really see him animated in any way, but at one point, Kupfer Kingle blames it on his wife and says, it's your fault that, you know, or I don't know if he says it to her or if he says it to his friend that it's his wife's Jewish blood and her fault that my son is so weak. But there is this sense of grooming throughout the film that not that the wife has anything to do with it, but that Kupfer Kingle has been grooming his son to be this way because there are all these amazing scenes where he's talking to his family and he will pull out this comb and will comb his own hair and then will comb his son's hair and will comb his own hair again. It just, it happens maybe four or five times throughout the movie, but it's, I mean, it's one of those just like great gestures that you could miss if you didn't catch it. But it just, I, I love that. <laughs> the way that he's always grabbing his son's 
face and pointing it towards him, like pay attention to me, especially when they're walking through the cemetery towards the end. And there's that statue in the cemetery that looks like it's the son and the daughter. It does. And I, the thing I couldn't figure out is if that was a statue that he had put there or it's just coincidentally there or what, but it, I mean, he really treats his family like their dolls, which I think sort of goes back to that visual theme of these paintings of bodies and the sort of collage effect that pops up throughout. But it just, it's like no one around him is real to him. Talked about how our main character, how Carl really doesn't get very animated through this, but he does when he is being asked by the lead Nazi about cremation. So the Nazi comes to him and they put Kingel in front of this painting by Hieronymus Bosch and they ask him about cremation and they don't necessarily put it in so many words, but he gets the idea and he starts to talk about how great it would be to start liberating more souls in a faster rate. And that is this whole thing is like how great it is as a cremator to be able to liberate the souls from the body and that he does it so quickly he does it even better than they did for Jesus, that Jesus was embalmed and put in this tomb, and it would have taken forever for him to decompose. And here, Kopfer Kingle can do it in 75 minutes. And now they use gas, so it's a lot better than when they were using coke to do this. Now it's 75 minutes, we can liberate the soul from the body. And when the Nazi comes to him, he's just like, oh, listen, I could do so many great things. I could have a whole factory where I can liberate the souls of hundreds, of thousands. And he just starts to go off into this whole world where he is just really excited about this idea of creating a mechanism now for liberation of the souls. And there's a point where he even says, you know, that this could be the method of death and liberation all at the same time. You wouldn't have to be dead before you go into the crematorium oven. You could go in there in one way and come out another. Yes, the ashes would be all mixed up, but that's okay. It doesn't matter. And just to the point where the Nazi has to stop him and be like, hey, 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 you know, we're, we're good. And the way that they use that, that Bosch painting behind him and we get those images of all of these Jewish people and all of these people that Carl has put his finger on as being undesirables. And we get those still images of these people. So like Dr. Bettelheim looking up at the camera with his hands open and then descending into the Bosch painting, descending into hell so quickly. And we get that again and again and again of all these different people that he's just sending away. It is one of the most striking sequences in a movie that's filled with striking sequences. Yeah, it I I don't know. I so one of my favorite things about it is this sort of recurring motif where he talks about his passion for the crematoria and sort of death rituals and it just it gets so so apparent that his only real interest in anything is in these sort of processes of death and the crematoria itself is just not like any so at least in 
you know, American funerary practices, sometimes people go to the medical examiner's office, which is where you get an autopsy. But for the majority of the time, if you have sort of a natural death, you die of old age, you go right to a funeral home where they have crematoria on premises. But it's not this like giant temple the way that it seems to be in the film. And it's sort of like it's become his religion. And he twists together all these different threads of mythology, which I think is why Tibet shows up so much. Because he has this idea that returning to life or or rising from the dead is bad. And there there are these really strange scenes where they're having dinner. And I think uh, one of the guests, who's this teenage boy, asks, you know, have you ever had a body wake up? And he says, no, no, that doesn't happen. If somebody wakes up, they weren't actually dead. And it's so it's like clear that he's misinterpreted what this conversation is actually about. And later on, when he's giving that insane speech about liberating thousands of people, he says something super creepy about how after 75 minutes in the furnace, no one will get up again. And you're just like, holy fuck, dude. (laughs) It's also such an interesting choice in terms of a plot standpoint, because there weren't any, so like to have a film set during the occupation, during the early years of the occupation, before there were really any death camps, but there also weren't any in Czechoslovakia. I mean, you had Theresienstadt, where certainly a lot of people died, but mostly because of illness or mistreatment. And there wasn't a gas chamber there. So it just, it's sort of this weird jump between reality and this sort of gothic fantasy nightmare that Hertz has constructed so beautifully. We talked about how nonplussed he is by death. I mean, obviously surrounded by death all the time. But the moment when he's walking through uh, the the crematorium and he's got his son with him and he's about to murder his son with that iron bar that that uh, Dovrak found earlier. Uh, Dovrak, by the way, played by Yuri Menzel, the director of Closely Watched Trains and also an actor who's been in a ton of stuff. And when he opens up one of the doors and he looks in and there's Dovrak hanging there. He just yeah. closes the door, doesn't say a word. That scene is a moment that is, like, on one hand, completely horrifying, and on the other hand, pretty funny all at the same time. Because it's almost like if you only, if you didn't see in the room and you only saw Kupferkingle open the door, you would assume, oh, Dvorak's in there sweeping or drinking a cup of coffee. The way he's like, oh, Mr. Dvorak, there you are. <laughs> And there he is alone in a room hanging. It's just such a brilliant moment, but one that I think makes you fully aware of how unhinged he's become, how accustomed to sudden violent death, and also what he's about to do to his son. After he murders his son with that iron bar, there's blood all over the floor, and all of a sudden this water comes in from off screen and starts to wash the blood away. 
and I don't know what it was. I think it might just be me being twisted, but the way that the the water is arcing and we don't see where the water is coming from, at first I thought it was a stream of urine. <laughs> and I was just like, what the hell is going on? I there? never put that together, but knowing Hertz's sense of humor, I wouldn't be surprised if that was sort of the implication. Because he's just done with his son at this point. You know, his son is such a disappointment that he's effeminate, that he is looking up to this guy who wants to bash Nazis in the teeth, and that he is a quarter Jewish, and that is just unacceptable. And that amazing way that he doesn't kill his daughter, and he's talking to that other version of himself, this monk version of himself, but then that suddenly turns from the monk version of himself into his Nazi boss. And his Nazi boss is like, don't worry, we'll take care of her. And I'm just like, that is the worst thing that you could hear at that moment is don't worry, we'll take care of her. Yeah, <laughs> it's just it's, it's awful. The whole thing is so chilling, especially if you consider that there's this recurring thread of dialogue that he has throughout the film where he talks about how – he talks about death like it's a positive thing and it's this peaceful thing that takes away your suffering and really it's for the best if that's how you wind up. And so you get the sense you get the sense early on that he has a fascination with death and that he's comfortable with death because it's, you know, his career. But you then get the sense that he thinks that people should die before natural causes or before they die of disease and he starts to say stuff like that to his children more i mean there's also this sort of fascinating couple of scenes where one of the corpses is this young woman who is about to be married and i forget if he ever mentions how she dies but he just is fixated on how beautiful she is and how peaceful she looks and has all these things where he talks about how it's unfortunate that she'll never get back up again. And I at least got the sense that he had sort of a necrophiliac fascination with her, the way she keeps coming up. Okay, so that's just not me being a, a creep. <laughs> Well, there was even an interview that I found on YouTube, and I'll post it on this episode, where uh, they're talking to hers, and he's like, oh yeah, Fuchs was crazy, and he loved the dead. And the interviewer's like, he loved the dead, like he was into necrophilia? And hers is like, yeah. And I'm like, really? So, And he was like, yeah, we wouldn't leave him alone with the dead bodies. I was like, oh my god, that's a little it much. It is a little much. I also wonder how like verifiably true that is not i think hertz is a liar right. but well hertz i also think is probably a bullshit artist because he seems to be one of these kind of um uh he always has that twinkle in his eyes whenever i see him interviewed he seems to have that twinkle like i can pull you along and tell you a fantastic story it'll be 90 percent bullshit but there might be a kernel of truth in there but he just seems like a jokester and i really appreciate no, i i love him. that about him and it's it's sort of i i think i really appreciate when people have this capacity to entertain and tell a good story without always sticking super closely to the truth i mean i think uh he's not 
check, but the Polish director, Andrzej Zawski, I think had a similar thing where he just, he just kind of had to, to pick away at interviewers and would answer a question, but either would tell you some wild story or would give you some lecture about art and literature. Like he couldn't just answer questions directly. <laughs> and I, I love the way that certain directors are like that. So, I, I mean, I'm sure he was the, the author of the book was a little nuts, but I guess we'll never know if he really was a necrophiliac or not. After he sees his Nazi boss at the end and he leads him to this car, you know, there's lots of work to be done for the nation and for, for humanity. Right. And he gets in that car. And then, like I said, it's, it's raining. We have the woman in black now in rain chasing after the car and, Carl looks forward and the windshield is replaced by that image of Lhasa from Tibet. And he is just driving into the future. And the way that he says, like, I will save them all. I will save the whole world. And he sincerely believes that he is about to liberate the souls of so many people so quickly. And this is now his job. His, his calling in life is to help liberate the world. It's so fucking creepy, (laughs) but it's also the perfect ending. And I love that you really, by this point, you really can't tell what's real and what isn't, and neither can he. And so you don't know if they think, okay, he's bananas, so we're going to put him in the back of this car and drive him somewhere and shoot him in the back of the head and dump him in a ditch, or if they're really going to drive him to Berlin so that he can start helping with the plans for you know, one of the the death camps. And I mean, by 1938, they already had most of those. So in reality, there's no way they would have taken this small time cremator from the middle of Czechoslovakia and said, like, you're our guy. He'll help us design these giant killing centers. But he just, <laughs> he's something else at the end there. Oh, yeah. And the world is so crazy at this point that he fits in. Yes. And I think that's one of the things that some of these Eastern European films and even some of the the German films, like I don't know if you've ever seen Mephisto, which is a Hungarian-German co-production from the 80s. But these European films do such a better job than their Hollywood counterparts at sort of conveying how this is a world gone totally mad. It's not just this place of here are some people who like to be in power subjecting these other people to death and misery. It's, it's this like universe has just been turned upside down and now we're in this hell dimension that I think the cremator does such a great job of showing. All right, let's go ahead and take a break, and we'll be back after these brief messages. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. 
Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. You guys look like... What do they look like, Jimmy? Dorks. <laughs> they look like a couple of dorks. If you're looking for dorky, geek-filled content where you can nerd out over movies, television, comic books, and so much more, then you've come to the right place. The In the Mouth of Dorkness podcast is bringing geek-related content to you three times a week. Hey, everyone. I'm the Turtle Dork here at Mod. On Mondays, we drop our Weekend Dork episode, which is a recap of sorts where we discuss the most pertinent geek-related things we did in the previous week. Hi, I'm Wife Dork. And on Wednesdays, we drop our Homework Cast episode. Each week, the dorks take turns choosing a movie for the month's chosen dork to watch and review. Like Heat, or Star Trek II, or Green Room. Howdy, I am the Mouth Dork. And finally, on everyone's favorite day of the week, we drop our Fistful Friday episode. Each Fistful episode is basically a top five list related to movies, comics, or some other geek-related topic. Because we all know at the end of the week, we need a little fist of Xander Cage. Hey, and I'm the Disco Dork. In addition to our regularly scheduled programming, we have special guests, film festival and comic convention coverage, interview episodes, and more. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Podbean, YouTube, and other podcast platforms. Just search In the Mouth of Dorkness or It Modcast, where we are for the promotion and progression of geek culture. Who is Carl Kolchak? He's a reporter. Now that is news, Vincenzo. News! And we are a news paper. We are supposed to print news, not suppress it. With the INS. What's an INS? Independent news servicer founded in 1904 by Enrico Peluzzi. Who seems to have a nose for the strange and unusual. Well, last year in Las Vegas, I uncovered a series of murders that turned out to have been committed by a vampire. And what is the Kolchak Tapes? It's a podcast. All about Carl Kolchak. What's a Kolchak? The Night Stalker. And where can you get it? On iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and at www.kolchaktapes.com. As foolish a game as any that Gordy the Ghoul could make up. This is Adam Spiegelman from the Cult Movie Podcast, Proudly Resents. And you're listening to my favorite movie podcast, The Projection Booth. I know, it's messed up, right?
right, we're back and we're talking about the cremator. So Sam, you had mentioned about uh, the way that these European films can do such a good job of taking us into this world of madness that happened during this time, during the Nazi occupation, as well as during the communist occupation. And I totally agree. And I'm curious what some of the other films are that display this. Like the one that immediately pops to mind is The Conformist. I mean, obviously, uh, our main character in The Cremator is the definition of conformity, just wanting to go along, wanting to please, and changing everything about his life including murdering his family in order to conform to this Nazi ideal. Yeah. The conformist. So I think I mentioned earlier how I love these, or I've really come to love a lot of these films about conforming and what it means to collaborate and what that does to you as an individual. I think the conformist, there are a lot of great Italian ones like the Rossellini film, General Della Rovere, uh, but the conformist i think is probably the the one that manages to well i guess so they all follow this sort of linear framework while at the same time showing you that this person has become totally dislocated from reality and i think another good example would be clouseau's film the raven where you don't really have a protagonist who's a collaborationist, but you're in this entire world that's just become bitter and toxic and people are just ready to tear each other apart, basically. And I think all of these sorts of films kind of capture that same tone. And there's this really fascinating sort of thread that winds through all of them about performance and storytelling and acting and sort of taking on these personas and what we talked about with the cremator his obsession with appearances and things looking a certain way i mean in general della rovere and the conformist you kind of have this protagonist who is in a sort of role where you never know who the person actually is because they're sort of taking up identities and discarding them at will in a way that I think really strikes a chord in terms of why somebody would want to collaborate and what that looks like, especially collaborate at kind of a higher level, not just a guy on the street who's turning a blind eye sort of way. And I think he Hertz does an even better job at showing the sort of almost schizophrenic tendencies because you get the sense that in the beginning of the film that he's a really rooted person. I mean, he's had this 19 year marriage. He's been in this career as a cremator for 20 years. He talks about how important Czech culture and history is, but then in the blink of an eye, none of that means anything anymore. And I think that's really like general Della Rivera basically follows this general who's not a general. He just sort of pretends to be all of these. He's this incredibly charming scam artist who basically works his way through occupied Italy and kind of scams these women into thinking that he's this distinguished general and he's going to marry them. But really he's just sleeping with them and taking their money. And he accidentally gets arrested and kind of, 
again, scams everybody into thinking he's this resistance hero so that he can get a better jail cell. <laughs> but, but then it sort of, it starts to get to him and he kind of really absorbs that persona. Whereas here it's the opposite. It's like he started off with this rooted personality and then it just scatters in the wind. He's rooted in some ways, but then not in others. I mean, the idea of the paintings and that he is projecting onto these paintings what he wants them to be rather than who they really are, that he talks about how valuable his marriage is, but yet he goes to see these prostitutes. And that, again, that the prostitute is played by the same actress as his wife. It seems like it's that to me is like this Madonna whore type complex where we've got the woman that obviously he loves that he's had sex with at least twice to have these two children. But it seems like he is much more into having sex with her, the actress as the prostitute rather than as his loving wife. So it's, he is so about appearances even at the beginning. So it seems like it's not too much for him to get pushed, but yes, this is 95 minutes and he goes from being this pretty, I would say grounded person. Yes, he's very concerned about appearances, but it goes from that and from being very, very kind. He's very kind to Mr. Strauss. Mr. Strauss has lost his wife and lost his, I think, his son. And he is uh, uh, retired from being a confectioner. And he is giving him a commission to find people to get cremated. And he gives him this, I think it's like a half crown. And the way that he puts it in his hand and folds his hand over is a pretty great moment. But then later on, he's just like, I don't think I gave him enough of a commission. I really I need to find an excuse to give him more money and perhaps you know uh, I'll give him a bonus at this point. So he seems very genuine and then later on how we shift and then suddenly it becomes Mr. Strauss is only concerned about money. And it's like, whoa, uh, you remember like 80 minutes ago how you were the one concerned about money and Strauss now, you know, his wife says, oh, yeah, Strauss is, uh, uh, is Jewish. He's like, well, Strauss isn't a Jewish name. And it's like, well, not, you know, not everybody goes, you know, people go by different names. You know, I call you Roman when your name's really Carl. You call me this term of endearment when my name is really this. And it, that seems to kind of put these seeds in his head as well. It's just like anybody can be Jewish. It doesn't matter what the name is. He's surrounded by these Jewish people. Now. Yeah. And I think part of it is that you get the sense that he's so locked into these expectations that the world is set up in these patterns and in these frameworks. And once he starts to see the cracks in the framework, that's when his own sense of self and sense of reality really starts to crack. And I just, I love that these Gothic elements are here because I I don't think you do get a lot of really Gothic horror films from Eastern Europe from this period, partly because of censorship laws, but this one just goes above and beyond. There's that moment too, when he's talking about, the people that are under the influence of the Jews, you know, his housekeeper is really good, but she's under Bettelheim's influence. His housekeeper is, she is the one 
who killed the carp. It's such a big deal that we have this Christmas tradition of eating carp on Christmas Eve and that he can't even, it's like Norman Bates. I can't, I won't even kill that fly. You know, and here we have uh, Carl won't kill these carp that he has to have his housekeeper come over and kill the carp for him. And then that, that the carp become this whole thing about, uh, you know, who cooks the carp in the Czech way versus the German way. And that Walter's very big on, you know, oh, jellied carp. That's, that's the Jewish way of doing things. You know, it's just amazing. I mean, there's so many levels to this film and it's really, really just so well done. And like I said, 95 minutes, this movie takes our main character from being this, what I would consider upstanding, pretty good guy to being this guy who wants to murder the world. Yeah. And he just like, there's some interesting kind of class things going on in terms of murdering and violence. And I mean, in the beginning of the film, we talked about how they're at the zoo and he has this whole thing where his the camera shows this shot of his kids behind a fence or behind like an empty cage. And he's sort of like, Oh, you know, cages are only for animals. And he has, he seems to have this very clear idea in his head of how respectable Czech citizens should act. And then there's how everyone else acts, which I think he, or at least this is how I read it, but he kind of implies that because the housekeeper is of a lower class, it's okay for her to kill the carp, but they shouldn't, like, he and his children shouldn't watch the carp being killed because it's bestial and it's beneath them. And he seems to feel the same way about the boxing match. And he seems to really hate violence and hate bloodshed, but he goes along with it because his Nazi friend wants to go. And it's just sort of this gradual erosion of this like separation in his head between the purity of death and physical violence. And then at the end, they kind of become merged in this horrifying way. We haven't even talked about the morphine addict and the way that, well, he, it's like he, he, wants to trade this collection of flies, these bottle flies and funeral flies and fruit flies. He's got this and he wants to trade this for um, some morphine. And uh, Carl's just like, oh, well, you know, the guy who can hook you up with that, he's out of town right now. But he's very, very nice to him at the beginning. And then towards the end, it's just like, you are scum. You are blight on the face of humanity and just really lays into him. And it's just like, wow, how amazing he's gone from this very charitable person who feels bad for this morphine addict to basically, you should be wiped out. You should be taken care of. Yeah, although that scene struck me as weird, too, because when he takes the display, and it's the sort of entomological like glass with all the sort of labeled insects. So the the guy addicted to morphine just shows up with it, and like it's not like he's in a shop and he sees it and he wants to buy it. He just sort of strolls up with this case of displayed flies. And when Coverkingle takes it, he he is kind to him and he does say, "Oh, you know, that guy's out of town, but 
when he gets back, I'm sure you could get your morphine. But like, he doesn't even offer him any money. He just takes the case and walks away and is like, oh, we'll, we'll deal with it later. And you get the sense that he's kind of taking advantage of him a little bit. Yeah, that, that display case is going to look really good in his back. Well, so one of my favorite abrupt cuts in the film is he's visiting the prostitute who looks like who's the same actress that plays his wife. And they're about to have sex. And you see him take the glass case and walk up to the wall and hang it on the wall while he's delivering this speech that I think is about, you know, the comforts of home. And you, so you think that he's hanging this fly display on the prostitute's bedroom wall, but then it cuts and you realize he's hanging it on the wall at his house. And now he's talking to his wife about the same thing. It's just, it's maddening, (laughs) but, but I love those kinds of cuts. And I think that one is my single favorite. Yeah. Yeah, that that is an amazing one because I was – I mean there are so many times where you're surprised when you're watching this film. Even when you're watching it the second, third, fourth time, there's still that disconcerting uh, way that we're cutting from place to place. And I love that um, in this uh, special – they I have to find the rest of these. There is a special series called The Golden Sixties that was done for Czech television it looks like and this – hour-long interview with hers where i'm amazed they didn't even get into morgiana they pretty much stopped right around the time of the cremator but going through his early days and uh when he talks about how he read satra and the way that uh the second volume of what is it the remembrance of things past i think you know this way better than i do the fragmented uh, uh, the, the landscape and that one character's in, I don't know, Budapest and the other character's in Paris. And he loved this idea of them interacting, even though they're f- so far apart and took that and made that one of the central ideas of the cremator and just the way that we move from place to place to place. And that space is just condensed the way that they put together with editing. And I mean, it's a, it's a great thing and it keeps you on your toes as a viewer. You never know what's and I happening. I think it has this really brilliant psychological quality where, so I know when we talked about closely watched trains, we talked about this whole idea of interiority and what it means for a director to really try to show you what's going on in someone's head, especially when they're adapting a novel. And I think in this case, this is one of the best examples I can think of, of somebody rooting you so firmly in a character's mind, even if their mind is, you know, diseased or unraveling. And these jump cuts and the way that the close-ups are so, and they're, I feel like the way we're describing them, if you haven't seen them, it could come across as sort of, campy or silly the way that i don't know a horror movie like wicked wicked or like brian de palma does these sort of cuts and these double screens but it's not like that at all it's sort of surreal but with every one it's like the carpet is being yanked out from underneath you while you're still staying with this character yeah no not campy whatsoever i mean there are it's reminiscent of match cut editing um but it goes one step further and really 
it does show the interior monologue of our character. And really, I was very glad to find – I didn't find the entire book as a PDF, but I did find a pretty good chunk of it that was translated into English. It could have used a little bit better proofreading on it, but whatever. Um <laughs> There were a lot of words where I was just like, I think you mean this instead. The way that the book moves from place to place, and again, it is very much this monologue. We get very little dialogue from our other characters, and it really is just our main character speaking and thinking. And really, they did a the adaptation of this, which was done by Fuchs and hers at the same time. It's a brilliant brilliant adaptation because so much of the dialogue is straight from the book it looks like and just they really captured the that interior monologue of our main character interior and exterior and yes so much of it is exterior because he is just can so you close. imagine though if somebody did a poe adapt of an adaptation of a poe story like this with these that would be i would love for that to happen because i think there's a similar feel to this story that there is to something with a ton of dialogue like the telltale heart even i mean i i know everybody already knows that story but like it just i think it's so effective at capturing not just horror but specifically gothic horror i can see why so many people love this movie because it really just it's so effective it is done so well and this is one of those like i've seen morgiana before but now i need to go see the rest of hers's work because if it is at all like the cremator yeah i would love for somebody to do even one of those uh i'm forgetting what they're called the criterion eclipse sets I, I know they've done a couple, like Makaveev has a set now, and there's that sort of uh, Pearls of the Czech New Wave set. I would love for them to do a Hertz set. I mean, I think he just, it seems like people know this film, and some people know Morgiana, but he just, and I'm pretty sure he's still around to do interviews, so the time is ripe. <laughs> He is. I reached out to him, uh, but unfortunately, he didn't get back to me. And then the second time I reached out to him, I got the notice that his mailbox was full. So I'm like, oh, okay. I don't know if he's big on email or what, but yeah, he's he's still with us. And uh, people really need to, to ch- check him out. I mean, we did mention also his adaptation of Beauty and the Beast from 1978. Um, yeah, and then um, I can't remember what that was... I think Daniel mentioned that in one episode that we we're talking about, but yeah, he's, uh, he's got a, an amazing filmography and then Ferrat vampire is another movie that if people haven't seen, you need to see that. I tracked that one down years ago when I was doing an article about killer cars and uh, cars that are possessed, you know, there's the, uh, I have a vampire motorcycle. This is very much like that. Uh, but I would say done a little bit better than vampire motorcycle. So it, you really owe it to yourself to check that one out. And it's again, black comedy, some horror elements to it. And just, a, a I haven't seen that one yet. Two. I, I really need to, I need to get it together. <laughs> If memory serves, the guy—it's when he pushes down on the gas pedal, the you, uh, his foot gets punctured, and uh, basically the car runs. And also, such a critique of the sort of communist machinery. <laughs> yes. 
All right, let's go ahead and take another break and play a clip for next week's show. Kdybychom si zahráli v karty, paní Friedrichová. Nemáme co skrývat, přišel jste mě vlastně jenom navštívit, pane ptáčku. Váš manžel by měl mít z našeho přátelství vlastně radost. That's right, we'll be back next week with a discussion of Happy End, the final of our first Czechtember series. If you enjoyed Czechtember and want to hear it again next year, drop me a line, give me a shout on Twitter or Facebook, or just sing our praises from the rooftops. I will definitely hear it. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-host, Sam. 
How is the busiest woman in Philadelphia uh, these days? Good. Uh, thank you for having me to talk about two of these Czech films because I love them so much. Pretty much everything I talked about during the Closely Watched Trains episode is still true. The Jean Roland book I edited, Lost Girls, is finally now for sale online. So Kat Ellinger, who's my co-host on the Daughters of Darkness podcast, she and I just did a commentary for the Hammer film The Gorgon, which has sort of some of the same gothic horror themes that we've mentioned here, uh, for this indicator Hammer box set that has all these kind of unusual entries. So like not your typical Dracula series or Frankenstein series movies. And I'm very excited about that. And where's the best place for people to keep up on um, all work? Probably through the Diabolique site, I think. I don't know that I have a good answer for that question. <laughs> uh, that's fine. That's fine. I'll make sure that people find you and find your work. Because, you, like I said, I'm not kidding around when I say that you're one of the busiest women in Philadelphia. Because you are always working on I am a bit of something. a workaholic. It's true. <laughs> well, in a good way. At least you're you're giving us some great stuff. If you're working at your day job as hard as you work on this other stuff, I mean, don't let your bosses hear this or anything. But Thanks. <laughs> no, it's true. I mean, I, I have trouble relaxing. So as soon as I have a day off, I immediately start a new project, which is probably going to give me a heart attack and send me into an early grave. <laughs> but oh, well. I know what you mean. Like even these days of like reading for pleasure, it's like I'm reading for pleasure, but always for the podcast. I do the same thing. It's really hard for me to convince myself to watch something or read something that isn't for research. Watching stuff, at least I'm able to get away from that. Like I can sit down and watch something really stupid like Baywatch or some of these other movies, but then I counter it with, you know, a documentary about Bosch, since we're talking about Bosch on this episode, or, or uh, you know, Rat Film, the documentary about rats in Baltimore. So there's always something that's going on, but at least I can unplug a little bit and watch really stupid comedy sometimes. I think it's necessary for sanity yeah. Yeah. purposes. <laughs> Cleaning, cleansing <laughs> yeah. the palate. Yeah. Yes. Well, thanks again, Sam, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-boot.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find links over to iTunes where you can rate and review the show, and to our Patreon where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the projection booth take over the world. Because he gets up in the morning and he goes to work at nine And he comes back home at 5.30 Gets the same train every time Cause his world is built on punctuality It never fails And he's all so good And he's all so fine And he's all so healthy In his body and his mind He's a well-respected Man about town doing the best thing so conservatively. And his mother goes to meetings while his father pulls the main. And she stirs the tea with counselors while discussing foreign trade. And she passes looks as well as bills that every suave young man. And he's all so good. And he's all so. 
this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media, let's make some noise.